Bloody Elbow presents Crooklyn's Corner, a hodgepodge of current event topics from the combat sports and entertainment community. Here is your host, Crooklyn, a.k.a. Steffi Haynes. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Crooklyn's Corner. Now, I know we've been away for a little bit, but I'm back and my favorite co-host is with me, Mr. John Nash. John we're here on Friday night. One Championship just finished with their very first Amazon Prime show. Now, I know you didn't get to watch it, but I feel like you'll probably go back and catch some of the highlights later. So I'm going to make one suggestion before we start. I want you to start with the main event and work backwards because the card as a whole was very, very good. Lots of exciting fights, but the main event, was the, premium. Well, I, I saw the finale. I yes. saw the. I saw Demetrius Johnson's KO. Oh man! So, Wasn't that dynamic? That was pretty dang impressive. Yeah, one of so the, that's an of the year uh, candidate for sure. Yeah, he's he still got it. Mm-hmm. He's still got it. I got got to give him credit, especially because you know, I mean, they they call it a flyweight fight, but that's not flyweight. Yeah, well, Morais he. Uh, didn't make weight so it looked to me like Demetrius was essentially fighting a welterweight in there oh yeah that was I mean that very well should have just been at 135 well it was at 135 because they're hydration rules but you know but still that was pretty much way way off (laughs) yeah he's not Demetrius Josh has taken a big He's really handicapping himself because he is not fighting at flyweight 125. Right? And, man, I have so much respect for that because he's taking on whoever. And, man, I dig that so much. But we are going to move on from that. We will circle back around to 1FC because I do have some questions for you about that. Excuse me, one championship. But first, we're going to focus on the UFC because... Fighter pay has been the hottest topic over the last couple of weeks. Luke Rockhold going full scorched earth on the UFC and Dana White is pretty much the booster for that effect. So what I want you to do is give your thoughts on what Luke said, especially the part where he mentioned that Dana has basically been given the reins to run the UFC however he sees fit because Luke feels that the folks at Endeavor, having been entertainment side only before they picked up the UFC, they didn't know what they were doing. So they installed Dana White and made sure that he stuck around, gave him a big fat uh, purse salary so that he would stick around and I'm wondering if you feel like he's running the show the way that Luke does I don't think so but you might yeah I don't agree with Luke Rockhold on that because uh, Dana Dana White is probably more the figurehead than he's ever been Mm. you know he's always been the, the, the mascot figurehead of the UFC but when Lorenzo was around people knew Lorenzo was really running the show and Dana, Dana had an important part, but it was the Rendell show when he when he was there. With with the Fertitas leaving, it's now become it's obvious to me that Endeavor's people that they put in, especially Hunter Campbell, play a, probably a much bigger part than Dana White does in the day to day operations, actual operations of the company. But Dana White has become much more the symbolic head of the UFC than he was even back then with the Fertitas. You know, they have the Dana White contenders. They do special shows. You know, they're they're constantly promoting Dana White, even more so than the past. So he's basically the Queen of England for the UFC. 
He kind of is. I mean, it's, he has obviously some power, some say. He does stuff, but he really is. I think much more of of the figurehead. He's the promotional entity, the the living mascot. You know, they're they're Mickey Mouse figure. Okay. Now we've spoken on this before, and you just mentioned the Fertitas, but Luke Rockhold's comments still raise the theory that things were so much better for the fighters under the Fertitas. Were they, or is that kind of smoke and mirrors yeah i don't i don't get how people make that argument all the time they, they say the oh when the partita was there was so much different but the partita set up the system the system was set up under the partitas and fighters if, if the big the big uproar was over is the, the wage share that fighters get the fighters get less than 20 percent. but that's what they got under the partitas the partitas are the one that created the system where fighters got less than 20 percent, and that's why they were able to sell it for billions and endeavor has just been continuing that system that they put into place that model and so it was the partitas that stripped away sponsorships. It was the Fertitas that forced everybody to sign over their image rights. It was the Fertitas that put everybody else out of business, so there's no competition, and bought you know the promotion that uh, Luke Rockwell was in, Strike Force. So, I mean, I think what it is is the Fertitas were more personal. They were there and interacted with people, and they used Dana White as a lighting rod. And and at the time, I don't think people were as upset at the UFC because people weren't aware of how much the UFC was making because it was secretive back then. But everything that the complaints about Endeavor, what the new ownership's doing, no, those should be directed at the Pertitas. The Pertitas walked away with the billions that the fighters wanted. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Luke also mentioned leverage. And that's a big thing. And how the UFC has basically all of it. How can fighters get leverage outside of some sort of solidarity movement or a strike, etc.? Are there other things they can do to leverage themselves? And I'm talking about fighters from the entry level floor all the way to the champion level. Yeah, I mean, leverage is the key. You do not get paid what you're worth. You don't get paid what you deserve. You get paid what you have the leverage, the ability to negotiate, the leverage to negotiate. So leverage is key, and fighters don't have much leverage. And stuff like, you know, you'd say outside of a strike and stuff, I just don't see as a, even a realistic possibility. It doesn't, you know, it, it's just it's it's kind of fantasy talk when people talk about all the fighters going strike. Solidarity would be nice. It would be nice if the fighters got together. But it, just being solidarity is not going to give fighters leverage. What's going to give leverage is doing something that gives you leverage with the UFC. And what gives you leverage is competition. Are there other promotions that can compete with the UFC? So fighters signing with other promoters, promotions helps a little bit, but that doesn't change enough because the UFC has the overwhelming number of the top fighters. So the things that would help fighters the most are shorting, making the contract shorter and less coercive. And we've seen some movement on that. And Ganu, it looks like he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year because there's now a sunset provision in the contract. So they've been shortened somewhere there. They could be even shorter. That would help if fighters could, could if enough, Enough fighters could then have the chance to leave because if a top fighter, if if let's say Ngano leaves and, and John Jones has the right to leave six months later, suddenly John Jones has leverage because there's the possibility of a fight with Ngano outside the UFC. So UFC has to pay more to keep them. That would help the being the contracts less coercive. Uh, I think one simple thing that could Wait, maybe help back fighters. Up, back up. Yes, I would like yes. to know what you mean about making the contracts less coercive. Please oh. elaborate. Okay, the less coercive, what I mean by that is 
is that UFC has all these leverage tools to keep you under contract once you're signed. So uh, like Nate Diaz has been under contract. He's going to be under contract for almost six and a half years before he fights it out against Shemaev. At that that depends too if the fight takes place. Let's say something happens to that main event. The UFC under the oh, the contract Nate Diaz, if it if it matches all the other contracts from that time that I have, they can extend it and say, oh, uh, an act of God happened. We have to postpone this fight. You are still under contract till we re till we reschedule it in December. And so he'd still be under contract. So he's been there for over six years. Why? On a five-fight contract. A five-fight, two-year contract has been extended to six years. Why? Because if he doesn't take a fight, if he's injured or whatever, they can extend it. Um, if they – if they, and they can choose when – you know, it's one-fight offers. They only have to offer you one fight, and it's not every six months. They just have to offer you the the fights in the period, the, the period that the contract lasts. So they can they can lump them together. But that gives them a lot of flexibility because if it was every six months, you know, a fight was coming, you'd be ready for the offer. But if they're randomly, they can find out when you're not available, when you're injured, when you're when you have a plan, when you're getting married, when you're on your honeymoon, and they can make a plan to offer you that fight that time. If you're not ready to take it, they can extend the contract. So that's course of a course of contract. On top of that, the championship clause. If you have the championship, they can extend it. Those allow them to course you to resign it because you're looking at the contract extending anyways. So you're like, I better resign with them for more money because otherwise I'm going to be sitting here making no money and they're going to keep extending the contract. So that's what I mean by less course of contracts so there's not provisions and the ufc to unilateral have the ability to extend it further the sunset helps but even five years is an awful long time to wait and so it'd be helpful if the contracts were shorter and they couldn't constantly keep extending it for you know for like say turning down a fight how hard is it for say a patty pimlet to come in because you know he came out and said that he only made twenty four thousand for his first fight so how hard is it for a Patty Pimlet type, a former champion from a respected organization, Cage Warriors, to come in and maybe negotiate for a contract two, three fights? Is that possible? Or are they always going to lock you into five, six, eight, ten fight deals? No, most most people coming in are on four fight deals. Okay. And then your second contract's five or six. Patty, he might have been on a five fight right away because they knew they had something there. Mm-hmm. But you come in usually on a, on a shorter contract, uh, and then they extend it. They and then they you know they make long. But the thing about Patty is, young guys they want to go to the UFC. They want to go to the UFC and build their name up because that's all the best fighter. That's where you get recognized. Mm-hmm. You do not become a big star going to another promotion because that's not known as being the major leagues. And so what would help fighters have leverage is if you didn't have to go to the UFC or didn't have to stay in the UFC to be a big star. And the way that would the only way that would happen is a big the top fighters, the guys that are that have to sign six, eight, ten fight contracts to get the bigger deals, if they could somehow get out and fight out of the UFC and move on like Francis Ngannou is, where they could if 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 the top heavyweights, Stipe, John Jones, and Francis Ngannou could all somehow exit together, then they'd have leverage to bargain with whatever because now there's big fights that can be put on somewhere else. You know, same with uh if if Volkanovsky or Max Holloway, but especially Volkanovski champion, if he could leave the UFC now, if he had the ability to exit the UFC, he'd have leverage because he could go fight Pitbull 
uh, and make a lot of money. And, you know, you could put that fight on in Australia and probably sell it in an Australian stadium. Or if not even say it, maybe an arena. Let's just say an arena. An arena could pack and make enough money that if he had a boxing split, he would make more doing that than he would fighting in the UFC. And so that would give them leverage. They'd have options. We need options. <laughs> yeah. Now, Ariel recently had Sean O'Malley on, and you just can't watch that interview without coming away thinking that Sean has done a complete 180 from his earlier comments about how he wasn't going to fight rank competition for the amount of money that they were paying him. And now he's talking about fighter pay like it's the greatest thing ever. I saw on your timeline that you agreed with some of the things Ariel was saying there. So would you mind elaborating a bit about uh, what you did agree with for our listeners and your take on O'Malley's comments as well? Well, I agree with Hawani about the basic idea that the the, the people that are the, the most getting damaged is not all the fighters. And and I, I get into this sometimes with some people like all the fighters deserve a raise. I'm like, well, I don't not to be mean, but I don't feel bad for some fighters coming to the UFC and making 12 and 12. Mm. If you only have two fights in, you know, some local promotion and they throw you in the UFC because, you know, the, because they need someone to fill the card. I don't consider you really being hurt. They're, you're just there because they need a body to fill the card. What what I feel bad for is guys that been around that have earned some sort of position that have, you know, that have that have risen the ranks, have fought, had earned for a while, and they can't leverage their position as being recognized as a very good fighter to get to get higher pay. Mm. Those are the guys I really think should be making more money, you know. And then on top of that, the people that really, really should be making more money are the people we're paying to see, who we're getting a very small percentage of the amount of money we're for specific fights that we're paying to see. If you have a pay per view. You know, like if you have, I guess, Diaz versus Chimaev is coming up. I'll, let's say several hundred thousand people buy that pay-per-view just for that fight or a or hundred thousand people in Australia or 200,000 maybe bought the last pay-per-view with Volkanovsky because he was on that card. Well, they deserve the vast bulk of that money because they're the people that you're paying to see. And yet they're getting a very, very, very small share of that. And so I agreed with Hawani on that part. Uh, for for O'Malley, I just find it amusing because he has, you know, it's part of his gimmicks. Like I don't, I don't give an f. I, I'll, you know, I speak my mind. I'm kind of a wild guy, and yet and then when they get to the, ask him about what he thinks of fighter pay, it's like you could tell he's like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, oh, I don't, I don't give an f except about this. This is where I have no comment really. <laughs> and I found I found that amusing because it's like all these guys, all these we don't give we don't give a crap. We don't believe in you know censoring ourselves like you like you snowflakes do. And then you talk about that subject. I ain't talk. I ain't touching that with an eleven foot pole. <laughs> All right. Now Paulo Costa says that he only made thirty five thousand dollars for the Vittori fight. That floored me. I mean, I was just so shocked and taken back by that because he had just come off of fighting for the belt. How do you go from that to thirty five thousand, and then? He's 11 and 2. He wants to test free agency. He's been in a, a title fight. How in the world does that happen? Well, I don't think he only made 35,000 okay. to be exact because if you look at his old contract, the last time it was reported, it was like 55 and 55 or something and he won twice in non-title fights since then. So his contract should have been about 65 65 for you know based on the way the UFC contracts work. So 
how did he only pay, make 35? Well, he lost 20%. We know that because he, he didn't make weight. Mm. But the other thing is, I think what it is, is when you're a foreign fighter and you don't have a special agreement with the state, they automatically deduct 30% of your pay for income tax oh. before you get your, they, you know, most of the time you're 1099 and they give you the money and you have to deduct your taxes. But for foreign fighters, they deduct the 30%. So my guess is when you take the 30% and the 20% out of 65 grand and you lost five, that's like 32,500 left over. My guess is that Although he wouldn't, I don't know if he'd have to pay taxes on the 20%. So anyways, he'd be around $35,000 left over. That's my guess is that he, okay. he was looking at the check he got, not the amount he was contracted to make. Gotcha. Okay. You've had the opportunity to, to look at several UFC contracts. My question is, do they all have escalators built in? Because we see a lot of people most recently... Aljamain Sterling talked about the escalator in his uh, from before he was champion. But do they all have escalators built in? Like, is that the standard for contracts or is that only for the ones that are savvy enough to ask for it? Almost every contract I've seen has had an escalator. And usually they they work the way we always imagine like you're at you're at you know you're at 20 and then 23 20 and 20 then 23 and 23 then 26 and 26 now the people that i've seen that don't have escalator well first then there's also the old tough contracts would pay like eight and eight for three fights and right. then bumped like 10 and 10 for the next three years, something like that. So it was, it, they went up, but it took longer. It didn't, it wasn't an automatic every fight. It was gone up. Um, that's the old tough. I don't think they use those at all. I haven't seen those for a while, but the people I've seen that don't have that where their fights go up on a win are those with large sums usually compared to most fighters. Like if you, I've seen contracts. Let's say a guy gets two hundred fifty thousand base pay, and he has a side letter. You know the hidden the hidden contract that mm -hmm. pays him separately for five hundred thousand. Those are it's like for three fight deal that amount, and that that doesn't change. Okay. The infamous Dana White versus MMA media video went back up, I believe, yesterday. And I saw a comment you made that said that there was no mention of fighters having to waive gross negligence on the UFC's part before they could return to the octagon. I would love it if you could explain that, please. Well, first of all, I, I had to laugh at the video because it was all, you know, about how great Dana White to do to do this with all these naysayers and that how he was able to do it just on his willpower. But I'm like, well, one reason you could do it is that you made the fighters, if you wanted to come fight for the UFC and get your check that you kind of needed and keep your career going, you made them sign a waiver that waived all all damages possible or all blame on the UFC for even gross negligence. In other words, if they, if they got all the fighters together and stuffed them in a room with three infected people with COVID and they know those people have COVID, the UFC wouldn't be responsible. So it was that kind of protection, that blanket protection. So you're like, no one else could do this because no one else could get their athletes to sign that kind of waiver. And on top of that, they also got media guys to sign basically a similar waiver if they wanted to that. show up and report on those early shows. Yeah. So I had to, I found that amusing. And I also found it amusing that they made it look like all the media was complaining about Fight Island when people people recall that most of the criticism was about them trying to hold a, sh a show in California when California was trying to say, don't hold the show. Mm -hmm. That's where the criticism was. In fact, I remember I was on uh, show money and I said, my comment was, I don't think it's impossible for the UFC to, UFC to hold a show, but maybe wait three weeks after the peak went. And this is, you know, 
three weeks after the, uh, so it would have been two weeks after that very first show. Just wait a couple weeks when they were trying to hold that show in California, and let the let's see how what's going on because we don't know what the situation is. That's not like I'm saying you can't hold shows. That would be impossible. That you should never hold MMA shows during the pandemic. That was at the very peak panic situation. Don't interfere with the state when they're trying to do something. So, anyways, back to your your question about that. I well, I guess that is it. That's uh, that's the waiver that they wanted you to sign. That's insane. Um, another topic that's been on fire is interim titles. And again, visited your Twitter. You have an interesting take. Please elaborate. Well, uh, Trent Reinsmith wrote uh, a, a, little, a short little piece just about how uh, interim titles help the fighters. And he's kind of he's ba- basically accurate. He was that the. When you have an interim title, you make more as a UFC fighter. And because you have no leverage anywhere else, it's actually good for you that the UFC gave out, you know, gave you the right to become an interim champ. Because it's really the UFC that just declares that on its own. It's not a sanctioning organization. There's no guidelines or rules. They just make fights, interim title fights. So it helps those fighters. But for me, as we talked earlier about leverage, I think it would be better. A better way to improve pay for fighters would be not to hope that the UFC grants you the right to become an interim champ and and, and grants you just as a gift higher pay is that instead of making extra titles that we gave fighters the leverage by saying that UFC, that fighters control their own destiny, that it's not the UFC that dictates who gets to fight for a title, but it's some sort of rule guideline committee or whatever that says you beat the best guys, you have the best record, you get the title, you are guaranteed the title shot. Well, if the UFC can't deny you the title shot and you're guaranteed it and you're not forced to sign a longer contract to get it, that increases your leverage because now you know I can win the title and just walk away unless the UFC is willing to pay me more. And they can't deny me a championship because the rules dictate I'm the next guy. I'm the mandatory. Makes sense. What's your take on James Krause doing an official UFC betting show while actively training UFC fighters? Well, I don't watch his show. I don't follow too much, but I, I followed a little bit. I heard the story. and all That's just immense conflict of interest because if you're training guys and you're doing a betting show, well, especially they're not betting on the guys he's training, are they? Is he? I, I have no clue. I just okay. saw it that Okay, that would be the – that's the Pete Rose situation, you know, where yeah. Pete Rose said he never bet on his own teams. But if you did that, you've crossed the Pete Rose line because that – that would be a immense conflict of interest. But if you're a trainer, you would hope that you're not also doing betting on MMA because MMA is is one of the easier sports probably to fix. If you really, I mean, they can with the algorithm they can follow the betting. But if you can just if you're on big events with a lot of action on those cards, you could spread it out with internet betting and stuff. It'd be I imagine it'd be hard to track uh, illegal gambling and a fixed fight, and so. To me, that's just immense conflict of interest. Gotcha. We talked about one FC earlier. Excuse me, one championship. I have a hard time with that one championship. But anyways, uh, we talked about it debuting tonight on Amazon Prime. I could not help but notice that when I first came in, there was not a a hashtag trend big enough to even show up in the sports trends. Now, by the end of the, the, the event, it, it was trending. But when I first came in, and I actually did a search too. So I didn't just look in my own search uh, criteria, my own search window. I actually did the, the extra legwork and I couldn't find anything. Is, is that indicative of anything or am I maybe reading too much into it? 
I mean, I don't think you're reading too much into it because the what I think it indicates is that one championship, there's just not a ton of interest in it. Uh, I, someone, and I think it's uh, I want to I want to give credit to on Twitter, uh, MMA Observer, I think it is, MMA Observer underscore something like that. Anyways, sorry if I got it wrong. He tweeted he did a Google search, Google Trends for all the non UFC promotions, Bellator, Professional Fight League One. And you look at it, both the United States, I think global even with Ryzen global is that the one championship wasn't nearly as there was nearly as much interest in them as there were in the other ones. So there's just not a ton of interest in them. Do you think it'll grow with their Amazon Prime deal? I, I'm not certain. I mean, it gives it makes it an easily uh, an I guess an easy broadcast platform in the U.S. So it's easier to find it now, even though it was easy to go to YouTube, it just wasn't, that's not something people go to to watch sporting events. Amazon Prime, you know, you watch it for your shows, people that have it. I don't have Amazon Prime. I refuse to, to do anything with Amazon or, where, or Whole Foods or any of their subsidiaries. But for those that have it, it's, it's an easy thing to go. It might help them a bit, but I'm not, my understanding is there hasn't been a ton of marketing involved with it from either in the domestically and the other, you know, the, the, the amount of money that one's spending on it and the amount of money on Amazon. Does Amazon do a lot of promotion for it? I, when I opened up my TV, I actually have, um, I have an Amazon TV. <laughs> so when I open it up and the, uh, all of the apps come up on it, cause it's a smart TV. The very first thing that was there was the banner for, for the one show. But well, that should top. help. Yeah. That... They, they actually did do some, but I didn't see it all. Like when I watch an Amazon show, I didn't see anything promoting or, you know, any, any other banners or anything like that. So that, and plus I haven't done anything with Amazon. Amazon Prime recently, so I wouldn't know other than the small banner that I saw when I opened my TV. I mean, all I know is I haven't seen from like the sports trades and stuff like that. Right. I haven't seen much coverage of one championship being on Amazon. So the 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 greater media that covers, you know, the streaming services and sports, they don't seem to be paying any attention to it. It hasn't. It, it's only MMA media that I've seen so far, and even that hasn't been a ton. Okay. It's been it's a narrow MMA media coverage, and as you know, we're the one. From my understanding, is one does not get a ton of traffic mm. on our website, so you know, I I don't want to say read too much into it, but I don't think who knows it might change going forward. They might put more energy into the American market. They they might do more to push it, but so far, there's just I don't think there's nothing indicates there's a, a great deal of demand for it. I saw that they recently moved all their shares to a Grand Cayman Islands entity, essentially redomiciling there. Please explain what redomiciling means and why this is kind of a big deal. Well, what that means is you're moving the company headquarters and legal the legal entity's uh, location to there. So if you're in the Delaware, the U.S., you're a U.S. Delaware-based company, and so you're you have to follow their laws, their their laws on reporting, all that. And so they're no longer in Singapore, which is big because this is they've sold themselves as a Singapore success story, a big a Singapore company, one of the one of the big Singapore unicorns. And so they they basically wrapped themselves in the identity of being a Singapore Asian company, and now they're no longer an Asian company. They're moving to the Caymans, and Caymans are important too because they don't require uh, the disclosure that other places do, especially Singapore. Singapore, every year you are supposed to file with ACRA, and 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 those filings, 
even though they're a year old, they let you look. That's how we've been able to get, for the most part, get the one championship's finances, group one holdings, because every year we get to look at it and see how much they lost. You know, that's where we learned about the barter, uh, all these 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 moves they made. We will, those will no longer required. The only time they're going to have to re- the file now and make stuff public is if they go ahead with a uh, IPO, an initial public offering on a market, and then they have to file with the SEC. And so then there'll be some requirements. But in my understanding, the rumor is that they might, instead of going with the Dow Jones filing on the that market, they'll go with NASDAQ, which needs it has less requirements. And the other kind of strange rumor is that they got an LEI, it's called, which is a uh, an LEI code, which was, uh, oh, man, I never used those. So I'm trying to remember. It's a legal entity identifier. I couldn't remember. But that is for that's for basically hedge funds and people doing financial transactions. That's not typically something a regular business gets. So there's a mystery if they're going to do that or why they would do that. Isn't the Grand Caymans where people put offshore accounts when they want to hide their money? Oh yeah, the Cayman Islands famous for that. That's yes. why because there's, that's the benefit of being there. They don't have the disclosure. You do not have to report your finances while you're there. And that's where I'm going with this because yeah. I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that Shatri hid all his money from you because you were exposing him for being broke. <laughs> well, I don't know about being broke, but because they they had raised a ton of money, but they were blowing through it. So exactly, that was that was probably the the better way to describe it was that they were burning through all their money. But uh, I just think that it's all your fault. <laughs> well, uh, and you're not the first person hiding. that told me that. But I, you know, I, I it might also I I could actually I don't think it's me personally, but the idea that people could see their finances yeah. is one reason they might have made this decision. They're like, but we do not want those in the public. Who was the first? First one to really put it out there. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it was you. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 <laughs> it it's not like I did anything super special, but yes, it oh, was. Oh, you ran him into hiding. Mm. All right, so I saw also some boxing stuff on your timeline, and and that's probably my favorite stuff. But I know that a lot of people don't want to hear us talk about boxing for an entire show. But I have to get my questions in. I can't help it. Alexander Usyk, Lord Usyk, as Mookie Alexander calls him is on track to be the highest boxing earner this year. Now, his footprint is not nearly as big as Tyson Fury's. How did he manage that? Well, we don't know for sure he'll be the highest paid boxer, but there's a good chance he'll be, depending on what the Saudi Arabian government offers as for the, the, the match with him and uh, and Fury. If that happens, it's supposedly they're planning December, and supposedly they have a huge sum available for the site fee. And if, so if the amount of money is true, that it's over $100 million, and you include some of the other stuff, it's possible – Let's say he'll at least make him and Fury will at least both make fifty million, but it's possible he gets seventy-five million or more. If that's the case, he might just edge out Canelo, who made forty, forty-five million. I think forty-five million his last fight, and he's probably supposed to make sixty million against Golovkin. So he'll be over a hundred million. And then if let's say it's seventy-five million between him and Fury, each each make not just one, each making seventy-five million. That would also mean Fury, with the thirty million he got paid for uh, for Dillian White, there'd be three boxers that made over a hundred million this year. Lordy! And so there's a and for Usyk, it's an interesting because he is not a massive star. He's not someone. He's not the guy driving the business. But what he could do, and this is where leverage is, 
He captured three of the four titles. He is the prime heavyweight champion of boxing. If you want to call yourself the heavyweight champion in boxing, you basically got to beat him to be undisputed. And so when Joshua had to first had a mandatory and was required to have a mandatory defense, Usyk was the mandatory. He could negotiate with Joshua. And because he was a mandatory, you couldn't force him. Like, you know, it's not like the UFC and MMA where if you want to fight for our belt, you got to sign a contract with us. No, he's a mandatory. He can he can negotiate that belt because you have to give him the shot or you lose the title. He won the belt, and now he had the free reign to negotiate with Joshua. And so I want a 50-50 split. And so if we're going to generate huge amounts of money, I get 50-50 of that split. And the same is going to happen with uh, with Fury now. I think Oleksandr Usyk is actually catching on big time now with all these oh. recent wins with his insane attire. I love his drip, man. It's it's insane. I love all of his. his he's he's wear. getting bigger, but if you look, I mean, in the U.S., I, I ask people all the time, kind of casuals, and people have heard of Fury and right. they know who you know Engano is because they UFC, but very few people know who Usyk is in the but United that's States because he's just now catching on. I, I figure yeah. in about two years we'll finally get those casuals on to him but it's gonna take a minute i mean well according to uh camel mclaren it's unfair that someone that's not a draw gets to get paid that much i saw that too want to talk about that for a second well i, I just thought it was absurd he was he was commenting how i was pointing out that Usyk was with the way the uh sanctioned organizations are supposed to work they don't always they have a lot of there's a lot of problems with them they're they're run by very corrupt people but the way they're supposed to work is the way it worked for Usyk. is the sanctioned organizations are supposed to work like a sport and they give guys they rank guys give them mandatory fights who could based on that they're the best and you're not able to use your leverage of being the promoter of the champion to force concessions out of the other person. So he was able to get a fight, win it, and retain all of his leverage, all of his negotiating ability after winning it. And because of that, he was able to get tens, you know, maybe a hundred million this year. And McLaren was didn't think you goes you th- was wondering why, you know, how could I possibly think that's fair that a man that's not a draw got to be paid that much? And I'm like, well, because he's the best heavyweight in the world. Mm-hmm. Indeed. To your point about it not really being a sport, Deontay Wilder said that too, that it's just a business. You sort of agree with that. I I, I catch that with what you just said. Expand a little. Well, the the sport is prize fighting. You're it's a business. He's a but Deontay Wilder's a professional boxer. It's a profession. He's there to make money. That's his decision. The promoter is just there to make money. You think the promoter cares about the integrity of the sport? No, they're there to make money on putting on events. But the one part I disagreed with is it's not. He said it was everybody in boxing. It's. It's true, but it shouldn't be that way. There's one group of people that should treat boxing as a sport, and that's the sanctioning organizations. It's their job to protect the integrity of boxing. It's their job to, to rate people honestly, to make sure that mandatory the, the, the champions defend their titles the way they're written on paper, the rules, that they're not given leeway, and you don't, you know, they're printing up all these extra titles now, but they're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to protect the integrity of the sport and treat it like a sport, that the that people earn the titles with meritocracy it's a it's a meritocracy with merit you get it and what that does too is that they treat it like sport it actually gives the athletes more leverage because they do not have to if the promoter has control over who gets a title shot then you have to give up concessions if the sanctioning organizations make the titles based purely on merit all you have to do is win and now you have leverage with the promoter why are so many of the sanctioning organizations corrupt 
Well, it's man, that's a long, long history <laughs> we got to go through. But, but they're corrupt because they're even though they're classified as nonprofits, they're built around entities. They're non, they're not, they're five, uh, they're nonprofits of a group three, not six, which means they're they're for the not for the public, but for that entity. And so they're corrupt in the sense because they are looking for they've captured this sanction this this entity that's job is to title sanction title fights, and they've used it to, to enrich themselves. And so when Sanctuary first started, what it was is basically the police gazetteer said, we want to declare who's the best boxer. So we're going to put a, a belt around uh, the winner of Sullivan Kilrain. Uh, and, but from that, it started going that the state commissions got involved, the New York Athletic Commission. And the Athletic Commission stayed involved with the sanctioning organizations up until the 60s till there was a split because foreign athletic commissions thought the American ones had too much control. And then we get into the 80s, and the American ones, because they didn't want to be involved in having responsibility, they stepped back, and private entities took over, even though they're you know they're nonprofits, private entities. So the, the state no longer was involved in the sanctioning organizations, and at that point, that's where they really got basically corrupt. So my solution, a simple one for boxing, and I think would be good, is follow the PGA Tour and the boxers create a nonprofit organization that's going to be the sanctioned organization run by the boxers, basically an association like the Tennis Association, the uh, the American Tennis Pros Tour or, or the PGA Tour. And that sanctioned organization would not – that way when you're paying sanctioning fees, it wouldn't go to enrich people in the organization. It would go to like let's say boxing pensions. Yeah, I and, like it. And then they would stick to concrete, stick to the rules 100%. There wouldn't be playing favors to certain promoters. They wouldn't they wouldn't be doing what uh, I'm sure you saw that that scandal where some of there's lobbyists for the for the sanctioning yeah. organizations. Yeah, I saw that. That's crazy. So, but yeah, it's it's a long history of uh there it's a simple fix, but it's an impossible one to get off the ground. Final question on this, and then there's one bonus question. But my final question here, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that Saudi Arabia will get Fury Usyk because they have the money and money talks. Is there a real gain for them to continue dumping this massive money towards sport washing? Are they seeing results from this? I'm not sure. I mean, I I guess they're I one thing I heard someone said that people do not report. Remember when they covered the first uh the first Andy Ruiz Joshua fight, mm-hmm. there was a lot of coverage of the uh human rights violations in Saudi Arabia. Right. Same with the WWE went there. And that, those have kind of receded as it's gone. So that maybe in that sense, people are kind of it's passed over and people are ignoring because they're getting more and more used. But I do not see the massive benefit to them being involved in these. I don't I, I is it turning into a tourist destination? I, I don't imagine that. I think, you know, I mean, part of me says that these guys shouldn't fight there because of the 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 the, the bad record of human rights violations. But part of me says, if well, if you're just going to bleed them dry, I mean, maybe there's a, there's a positive about that. <laughs> All right. So I promised a bonus question for those of you that out there that are not familiar. And I can't imagine that anybody is not familiar with John. He works in the entertainment industry. I know you work with court shows, but you've worked in movies as well over the course of your your career. So I'm cruising through your Twitter as I like to do because I stalk you. (laughs) I feel like I learned from your Twitter. And I came across this video from Matt Damon, and he's talking about the importance of DVDs. And I would like for you to relay the conversation and why it matters. 
Well, he was talking about why people, like a lot of people have a reaction when they're going through the streaming services now. Like they don't make movies for me. Everything that's coming out, I don't like. They don't make movies like the ones I used to like. Like I think they're using the 90s as an example, but some of them, Matt Damon's The Rainmaker, some of his older movies, like why don't they make movies like that? And he was explaining that one of the, the things that happened is the DVD market dried it up. And, it, and when the DVD market dried up, it, it killed a form of revenue that a lot of smaller movies could depend on. So you could release a movie and the budget might've been 30 million. And with 30 million of PNA, you know, making prints and advertising it was a $60 million movie. So you had to make enough, but in the theaters, you'd only collect maybe half your money back, but then you'd have another release when it got to DVD VHS and you would make a fortune on that. And those types of movies could actually be profitable because they would get a lot of money, a big portion of the revenue from the DVDs. When that dried up, that money disappeared. And suddenly those kind of mid-budget films were no longer profitable. I think he's mostly right. Uh, I think people, people I think, misunderstand what he says because they're, they're thinking that the trend started in 2000, the idea of going to these bigger blockbusters. But DVD sales peaked and died in 2008. So that revenue was still there. But what I think has happened, there's another part that he didn't talk about just as important, and that's the the conglomerate conglomerates that came in and took over Hollywood. Hollywood studios, they were run by businessmen, but those guys, they were studios, were film entities, film studios only. They were run by people that love movies, the studio heads, and they all they did was make movies or entertainment. And so they could make a smaller budget film and say, well, if it makes very little money, you know, that's fine because this is, you know, we need to make a certain amount of money to keep our pipeline going. And as long as it makes a little bit of money, we're fine. And even sometimes you're like, we don't, we're willing to lose some money on this film because it's a type of movie that'll keep the audience going to the theaters and we'll get the money back when the next movie comes out. But what happened is then the big Sony bought up a studio, MGM, and, you know, all these studios got bought up by massive conglomerates, AT&T, Time Warner. And they look at it, they they would look at it, they wouldn't go through the whole, they were running a film industry, they were running these massive companies, so they would look at the budgets and go, wait, how are we only making this small profit margin on these products? We need to make much big. We're trying to fill our balance sheet for the whole company. It's kind of like Endeavor with the UFC. You know, they, they're looking at massive returns from the UFC. They're not looking at little returns. They want to make sure it funds the rest of the company. And so they're looking at the entertainment. So they said, let's start just producing these big budget movies. So it was a one-two punch of we are only interested in very profitable movies, which started the trend. And then you take away the DVD sales like, OK, there's no chance anymore for the smaller movies. So basically, we're watching the death of the indie films. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think Hollywood as a whole, it's the film no longer has the cultural pull. And the other thing that happened, too, because these movies have died out and we've gone to, you know, people love to get upset at uh, Scorsese for talking about the roller coaster ride, theme park rides of Marvel. But he's right, because because for starting in 2000, we started just focusing on the young, the young Gen Y at the time, six, 15 to 25 year old market, these big blockbusters, we started not appealing to older view or other types of movies. Now those people, because they weren't making many of those movies and not marketing as much and not making them as people desire to go see them, they stopped going to the theaters. And so there's less, the audience that could show up for a silence of the lambs regularly or, a, uh, you know, or, or a bridges of Madison County that could have seen those movies in the nineties, this wide different types of films being made and making very good money. JFK, they're not going to the theaters anymore. So all they started, they went more and more to IP product, more and more to sequels, the guaranteed money makers, which meant more and more of that audience and the other audience staying away. Yeah. And so that that's what now, but now 
film doesn't because those movies aren't playing in the theater. It doesn't have the cultural relevance. It, the people aren't sitting around talking about Fargo. Fargo didn't do great in the theaters, but it did great on TV and VHS and DVD afterwards. They're not talking about Shawshank Redemption. Movies don't have that pull that they had in the in the past, where it was part of our cultural language. Is part of it also because of so many of the reality shows that also take away from movie going because you get so much consumable content via Love Island or The Real Housewives or Forged in Fire, any of the 550,000 reality shows that are out? Well, I think that's part of it. We've moved to content. As, as soon as people got out of the habit of going to movies, they had something else to film. And what could film is the reality shows, the constant internet, YouTube, all just constant distractions. Everything's content, and you're constantly being filled with it. If everything's content, there's nothing special about Goodfellas because you can watch, you know, you can watch a reality show about the mafia. You can watch another, you know, whatever shows on Netflix tonight. You can watch, switch over to another channel and watch YouTube videos and stuff. So it's, it, everything became just content. But I think the start of it was people, the must, going to the movies is a habit forming. People would regularly go to the movies. And as soon as they stopped regularly going, it, it kind of killed their their interest. They they would find it somewhere else. They would start turning to, you know, premium TV. You know, the, the Sopranos and stuff would fill that void. I feel like we're watching the death of the movie. Yeah, I think we are kind of. It's, it's, you know, I don't think it'll be dead, but it'll be like how it happened to theater. Theater used to be the major form of entertainment for everybody. They go to the theaters, you know, I mean, not movie theaters, but live theater. Right. And now it's a specialty thing. Same with opera. It's a specialty thing. And I think that's, you know, but nothing's, you know, the, the, the armored knight was ruled the battlefield for a couple hundred years. And then it disappeared. The, the, the fighter pilot uh, has ruled for a century almost in the skies. And that's on its way with drones out the door and film. It had a, it's sad because I love movies, but it's had a hundred year run over a hundred year run now. And it looks like we are in the last days of it having a, a serious cultural as a cultural force. Wow. That's insane. I, you know, all the way up until the pandemic, Eric and I would go to the movies every week. That was date night for us. I mean, it's just crazy to think that there we're, we're approaching a time when we might not be able to just go out and check out a flick on the big screen. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I I used to go to the movies all the time. I'd go. I mean, man, I'd go to the movies several times a week well, on, on a regular the, basis. You go to the nice one where you can watch all the oldies too. I remember you you would tell us, you know, a couple of years back. Uh, I'll be here watching this movie if anybody wants to come out. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to stairs. go. To the, I mean, the Egyptian hasn't reopened yeah. yet, but yeah, I would go there. Them in the New Beverly all the time, yeah. and they haven't. New Beverly's open, but the Egyptian hasn't. It's there. It's a hundredth anniversary. They're going to finally reopen, but I'll, I'll probably be there. But I'm out of the, it's the habit has disappeared. Yeah. Plus, the movies that are in the theaters, they're not movies I'm excited to see. Right. Like I used to. They're just Marvel. Yeah, I listen, I love comic books as a kid. I don't have no goddamn interest in seeing, you know, Cap I love the Captain America comic. I don't give a crap about seeing them on the big screen. At huh. least especially not twelve times in a row. I don't mind so much watching them. But I would like some diversity in film uh, as far as the what you can watch. If it, everything or if 75% of what's in the theaters is either a, a freaking Pixar or a Disney Marvel, and then there's one little offshoot of something that I don't really care about, choice being limited, I'm going to pass. Yeah, I, I, people try to defend like, oh, it's it's been the same. There's always been block. Yes, there's always been blockbusters. You go 30 years ago and Jurassic Park came out and Speed was out. But you look at now the top 10, top 20 movies. 
they're all they're all sequels. They're all they're all like the top four, the top six are probably Marvel movies. And then there's going to be a couple DC movies in there. And then there's going to be a couple, you know, maybe a James Bond movie that comes out. But everything is an intellectual property, an IP. And you go to the past. Yes, you know, in in ninety one, like Silence of the Lambs came out, but that was not a no one knew about the book series really when that came out. There was there, but there was also you know, like I said, there's JFK was a big hit. J, you know, the, we're talking about the top ten every year. Cape Fear was a top ten movie. Pulp Fiction was, uh, Forrest Gump. All these movies were massive hits. Philadelphia. And, I mean, that's yeah, a yeah, movie Philadelphia that was right a big now hit. Would not be big. There, there was just all these movies. Then, if you go down the top twenty, and then if you look at the percentage too, the top twenty, there were movies that made very good money that were, uh, that were just not, you know, Shawshank Redemption made good money. But there's all these interesting movies that were made back then. And yes, there's people can say, oh, there's just as good. There are good movies being made, but you're not hearing about them. They're not part of the cultural language. They're not, you know, no one sits around and it's not part of the cultural uh, geistite and stuff where we sit and talk at the water cooler about the next day about what we saw. They're just not important. And so they, they do very little bit of money at the theater. They don't do nearly as much as they used to. It's just, it's a, it's a different, it's a different climate now. And you don't get access to classics anymore because it used to be in the nineties and all the way into maybe the early, early 2000s, that an indie film could go to a theater and actually make it. And I, I think back to a movie from the 90s called Lone Star. It had oh, Matthew McConaughey. Great. John Sayles movie? Great yeah, movie. Yeah, it was a fantastic movie. It got legs under it. It started as an indie film. It got legs under it and did very, very well. That doesn't happen today. Yeah, people. Get, if you haven't seen Lone Star, go check. That is one of the best movies that yeah, came out of that period. Fantastic. Just an incredibly smart movie. Yep, I loved it. But anyways, it's about time for us to wrap. As always, I immensely enjoy the conversation. What I want to do right now, give you a moment, tell people what's going on, if you have some articles coming out, and where we can find you on social media. Well, you can find me on Twitter and social media, which is at, at Hey Not the Face. Articles, I should have stuff coming out. I should, <laughs> but I don't know when. I don't know when I'll have time. We, we're, I, I work in post production. I'm not on the exciting glamour production. I'm not hanging around with starlets. I'm not. I'm not uh, Eugene who gets to you know go around to the orgies and stuff after the the, the rap party. I work in post production, so which is just a grind. And so we are starting up production again because the COVID. We're just a, a backup of shows that have to be done. And so I do not know when I'll have time. I got several articles I'd like to write and get done and or videos too, but I do not know when I'll have time. So I'm not going to make any promises. How about a show money? Oh, we are supposed to record that this Sunday. Awesome. So we're going to get a show money next uh, Maybe. Week. We'll see. I might sleep through it, though. So, <laughs> Well, you can look for John again next week. Not this week, but next week. You can look for him on the Care Don't Care show, where he'll mm -hmm. probably making his 7,000th victory lap. Oh, yeah. I, well, I got to, you know, I, I take a golf cart now. I get so tired doing the laps. <laughs> All right. So uh, on that note, we are going to wrap the show. Until next time, please stay safe. Thank you for listening to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, hop over to the Bloody Elbow Presents SoundCloud and iTunes pages, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We are also on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. 
Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents, and you will get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, The Mookie and Crookie Show, The MMA Vivisection, The Level Change Podcast, The Sixth Round Post-Fight Show, Sixth Round Retro, The MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, and radio-style play-by-play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter, at Bloody Elbow, Facebook, at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. <laughs>